Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 23rd, 2015, the 11 hours and she didn't flinch edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., with our new producer, Jocelyn Frank. That is exciting. We have a new producer. Hello, Jocelyn. Jocelyn's waving. She knows better than to speak, apparently. John Dickerson of Face the Nation joins me from somewhere, a hotel room somewhere. Where? New York City. Oh, hello, John. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's not, that's not exciting enough. Not exactly. Far flung, but it flung anyway. Yeah, well, and also flung. Emily Bazelon is more far flung this week of the New York Times Magazine. Emily you're in the central time zone, we know. I am in Memphis in the kindly home of Ansley Larson, who I'm very grateful to for taking me in this morning. So we're having a late taping this week, so you're hearing the show late. Apologies. But it's because the news, the news required us to do it. On this week's GabFest, we will talk about Hillary Clinton's titanic performance in front of the House Benghazi Committee. Then we'll talk about Jeb Bush's attempts to make Donald Trump angry. And then we'll talk about a controversial essay by our former colleague, Matthew Iglesias, claiming that the Democrats are in really, really big trouble, but they don't seem to notice. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, Emily and I are going to battle, battle it out over whether it's okay for judges to coerce defendants into donating blood spurred on by an Alabama judge who tried to do just that. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you really want to become a Slate Plus member. This is a very good fight that Emily and I are going to have. I can sense it. It's going to be a very, very good fight. So if you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it and listen to the segment by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Hey, I am here also to beseech, urge, encourage you to get tickets to our live show, November 16th, Superfest at Town Hall in New York City. It's going to be a really good show. And it's uh, November 16th. We'll be doing it with the Culture Fest and Hang Up and Listen. There are going to be special guests. There's going to be drama. There'll be tears, laughter, sorrow. This sounds exhausting. Like much drama is going to unfold. But it all in a, in a pleasant, pleasant uh, hour and a half long package. <laughs> so slate.com slash superfestnyc. Slate.com slash superfestnyc. Please come. And there's a, there's a party too. So that'll be as well as well. Okay. 
Oh boy, oh boy, did Hillary Clinton have a good week. Joe Biden announced he is not running for president. Jim Webb announced he is uh, dropping out of the presidential race. Did Lincoln Chafee also announce? I heard that. He, Lincoln Chafee announced that he's not in. So the granite vote is up for grabs. The Wait, the what vote did you say? The granite vote. In the debate, he said he was a block of granite. Oh, oh, oh he's a block of granite. Uh, oh, I thought you were making a New Hampshire reference to the White Mountains. He's, no, no. He's like I, the old man of the mountain who just crumbled. Just like that, the granite that crumbled. So Lincoln Chafee's out. And Clinton absolutely crushed it in her long-awaited and for Democrats' long-dreaded testimony in front of the House Benghazi Committee. John, what happened at that committee? You, you can disagree with my, my characterization of that, by the way. Well, I don't think you can absolutely crush a, te- a testimony in front of a committee about a death of four people that happened while you were Secretary of State. I mean, which is to say this is not a period of her tenure as Secretary of State that she's ever going to talk about again in a positive way. So it can, it can only be so great as a moment for her because she's asking to be elevated to the presidency. And this is a moment of crisis that did not go well on her watch. Now we can debate and there is substantive reason to debate the extent to which she's directly responsible, to which she's contributingly responsible or not responsible at all relative to the way security is handled inside the Department of State. But I think crushing it is something you can do like at a debate where it's sort of an even playing field. I think this is not, you know, an issue that's great for her. Having said all of that, at the eighth congressional hearing on this topic, the bar was really high for new revelations and new revelations on the central question, which is did somebody was somebody asleep at the switch before about the level of security and the and the threats in Benghazi and did that negligence lead to the deaths? That was the bar for big revelations. They didn't hit that. There was another bar, which was to embarrass her, have uh, create a bad moment for her that would get repeated on the news in which she looked callous or dishonest. There were some moments of dissembling. You know, she said Sidney Blumenthal wasn't solicited. His advice wasn't solicited. And then she sort of changed and says, well, at the beginning, it wasn't solicited because clearly in email, she was soliciting his advice. That's pretty tiny stuff, but it does, you know, it's not nothing. But in the grand scope of things, which is that this is, this was supposed to be the big moment after so many investigations and after finally getting access to the emails that she hid from the State Department, there wasn't anything that was so grandly revelatory. And for a campaign that was you know, really worried about this moment, it was a big hurdle to clear. I did have this this horrible premonition as I was watching, and the name Sidney Blumenthal kept coming up and up again, just thinking back, flashbacking to the impeachment in of President Clinton, and I just thought, on my deathbed, I'm probably going to be hearing about, like, some hollow text, the hollow texts that uh, Sidney Blumenthal was sending to Vice President Chelsea Clinton and the House investigation of those those holo texts, those 3D holo texts. It was just <laughs> the idea that I have to hear Sid Blumenthal's name again was too much to bear. Oh my God, I had exactly the same feeling. I was reading something of like really going down the whole Sidney Blumenthal rabbit hole and I just was like, I can't believe I'm having to think about this for one second. So Emily, I was pretty impressed. Now I, I confess I didn't watch all 11 hours. I dipped in and out. Although every time I dipped in, it was the same question was being asked. So it didn't feel like I felt like I saw it. every time I was t- dipping in. It was it was why did Ambassador Stevens, if he was your friend, why were you not responding to his email? Why didn't he? And have why your were you? Why was Sidney Blumenthal email. emailing you? That was literally the question probably 
<laughs> three quarters of the time that I was watching it. But wh- why were you communicating through official C- State Department cables as you're supposed to be doing? Why shouldn't we talk about that at a hearing in which your private email server is the subtext for everything? But so w- I found her just absolutely devastatingly impressive that she was clear, she was smart, she kept her temper, she had a sense of humor at moments where it seemed like you could have a sense of humor, she was heartfelt at moments where seemed like, you know, she was genuinely heartfelt about the loss of these these four public servants. I mean, it was, I thought it was an incredible performance. Did you did you share that? I did think she was impressive as I thought she was at the debate. And I was it's now I'm like trying to channel why we thought she was going to suck in both of these venues or that she was going to get it wrong. And you know, so you go back to the first press conference, the you know, the one where she's in front of Guernica, where she's explaining her emails. And she seems defensive, and she's not really taking this seriously, and brittle. And then you compare that to both the debate and the hearing yesterday, and it seems like she is finding that tone in which she's taking seriously the proceedings. She has smart, thought-through responses. Now, of course, like, we would expect that. But then also she finds these moments where she's actually warm and she shows her humanity. And, you know, we were joking a couple weeks ago about how she had to basically, like, manufacture a way to be authentic. But it doesn't seem manufactured to me. I just want to take it at face value that she's letting herself be herself a little more. And the the one moment, at least, I caught that was kind of semi-hilarious was this question about whether she was by herself in the middle of the night. And it got asked repeatedly. Like, the congresswoman who asked it said, you know, well, were you alone for the whole night? And she just cracked up, like, as as if, you know, she was going to have some late night visitor, as if like they'd gotten her and Bill switched in their minds. And it was I thought it was genuinely charming. John, if we think of this hearing as a political exercise in large part for Republicans, is there any solace or utility that they can get out of out of it as a political exercise? The best thing that came out of it for Republicans is the some new information about what Clinton said on the night of the attack. But already, we need to put that in context. The Chairman Gowdy said of the three things being investigated, why were there lapses before the attack? Could anything have been done on the night of the attack to um, save these four Americans? And then finally, the spinning of the story afterwards. He said the first piece is the most important part, and that was the most important thing he wanted to get answers from Hillary Clinton on, which is, why was the ambassador asking for con- constantly asking for more security in this dangerous place, and his emails and, and calls for uh, increased security weren't, in a lot of instances, responded to? Now, there's a debate about the level of response, but it's been admitted that the, the security was weak and lax in, in Benghazi. And that's what the Sydney, this is, was a failure of, of management on the part of the people running the hearing. If their grand theory is that Sidney Blumenthal could get immediate action from Secretary Clinton on frivolous and sort of kooky conspiracy theory thoughts on Libya, why couldn't the ambassador in this crucial place have the same access to the secretary, the same sort of free flow of information, the same instant response to what are obviously more urgent requests. The best that is to be exploited by Republicans is this idea that on the night of the attack, Secretary Clinton sent an email to her daughter saying this is an al-Qaeda-affiliated group. She told the Egyptians that it was Ansar al-Sharia, an uh, an al-Qaeda-affiliated group, and that 
that immediate recognition that this was a terrorist attack is in contradiction of the ultimate storyline, which was that this was inspired, a spontaneous demonstration inspired by a video. The Clinton response to that is, we did think it was Ansar al-Sharia in the original reporting because they took credit for it. But then over 24 hours, they withdrew credit for it. And so it was unclear what the deal was. It's quite murky. We know the administration was trying to spin the story as a spontaneous event because to say it was a planned terrorist attack would make it look like the Obama administration was asleep. The question is, were they doing it because they knew they were lying or because they were just spinning and taking the facts that were the most politically advantageous, which is a garden variety Washington crime as opposed to, you know, the crime of actually lying. It's in that area that they made that they had some new revelations, but the two people who are still listening to me represent <laughs> who are neither me nor Emily. How yeah, I, what I want to know is, can we never talk about this again? Is, but like, my is, point is that agree? represents the the most effective, um, you know, new revelation from this uh, committee, and so most people will probably judge that not to have been worth the money and the time. Yeah, I mean, so so going to to. To Emily's existential point about this. Yeah. I mean, I I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true, and John will correct me, that this was the 21st hearing that Congress has held about Benghazi, which was clearly a tragic act, and a U.S. ambassador was killed. This was a tragedy, but really, should we spend $5 million, 21 hearings on this clearly partisan witch hunt around it? But is that something that is going to stick with a lot of voters? I think that we're at the point where if you think that there was a conspiracy by the Obama administration, you believe that. And I'm sure plenty of conservatives will still think that and they will find the bits of this hearing that go with that theory. And if you've had enough of the whole thing, you're not going to wake up and start paying attention now. I mean, I can barely get myself to strain to, like, remember that I used to understand what John was talking about. <laughs> the So... To me, the most impressive thing, John, about what Hillary Clinton did yesterday actually has to do with her physical stamina, her physical and mental stamina. And that here's this woman who's, I don't know how old, 67 now. She's, she's not a young woman. Is that your point, David? Yeah, she's not, she's a, she is not a young woman. She shouldn't be able to even stay awake for 11 hours. Well, look, no, I think his point win. is that as a... As a <laughs> Somebody who's in is forty-seven. I couldn't have handled that because it's I not know, just right? oh my it's God. not just the sitting in the chair, but your face is on TV the entire time. So all of your expressions you have to keep in check. And even for the most people with the most equanimity among us, uh, that would be really hard to do. You know, because a lot of the questions were the subtext of a lot of the questions was pretty sharp, even if the explicit question was not terribly sharp. Oh, so, absolutely. It was yeah. grueling. And I don't think there's enough coffee in the world that could have gotten me through that because it was it was sharp and it was mind numbing at the same time. I think that um, the entire question that Republicans have to face as leaders in Congress is where their priorities are and how they use the institution to spend their time and energy on priorities that match with the American people. Can they bring her back? They could. They'd be crazy too. People like her when she's under fire wishy-washy Democrats, the sort of Democrats who are like, yeah, I'll vote for her. They, they like her better when she's in these tough situations. And she's not going to have those tough situations. And I, I, I think if I were Hillary Clinton, I would worry about people kind of getting tired of you and a little bit sick of you and, and not uh, seeing this, you know, this kind of clear excellence that you, you have. I don't think there are lots of voters for whom her performance yesterday was not a demonstration of clear excellence. 
for a lot of people who aren't paying attention to either side on this, it's, it's that uh, when you have Hillary Clinton, there is a sidecar of drama. Who knows whether who's right on which one or whatever, but it's been, you know, 30 years of constant Michigas. And maybe it's because there's a vast right-wing conspiracy, or maybe it's because she goes around the rules and sets up her own private email server, and that gets people all riled up. And I think that kind of, what you're describing is, is competence when the back is against the wall has this other problem to it, which is that it, it's another moment of public drama. Um, I think she probably doesn't want so many of those, but I think what you are talking about... Yeah, maybe she gets to just, like, stay out of the news to some degree. Well, or that she becomes, she does what they've tried to do before, but which is take on the Republicans on on fights that that people care about. So if she can have a fight about family leave, that's more politically advantageous for her because, and you saw her answer about that in the last debate, because it's a substantive thing that people can think, yeah, that matters to me in my life, and yet it's a, it's a fight, and so she gets to use the, the qualities, David, that you say were on display uh, in the hearing. All right. Now a word from our first sponsor, which is Stamps.com. How great would it be if the post office were open 24-7? No more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule, and now you can when you use Stamps.com. You can print postage whenever you need it, right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package, then hand it to your mail carrier. You'll save money with Stamps.com as well. You can get exact postage the instant you need it, no more overpaying, and you can even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, if you sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a special offer, a four-week trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. All right, let's go onward. Jeb Bush, in his latest desperate incarnation, is attempting to turn a, a spat with Donald Trump about 9-11 into what he hopes will be a big issue. He's taken derisive comments that Trump has made about his brother, George W. Bush's 9-11 and post-9-11 and pre-9-11 performance. And he's taken enormous umbrage at those remarks in an attempt to do to do what exactly, John? What is he doing? What is Bush trying to accomplish here? He's trying to show that he has a little pep in his step. Uh, that he is not, as Donald Trump says, is lo- he's not low energy. He's trying to build on the support that George W. Bush has in the Republican Party. 89% of Republicans have a favorable view of George W. Bush, which is up from where it has been. Uh, and he's trying to use his brother's legacy as a way to define Donald Trump, which is interesting because there was a long time where he, Jeb Bush, didn't want to be defined by his brother's legacy. But, but he's now saying that Trump, by saying these things about George W. Bush before 9-11, is um, showing that he doesn't have the judgment to meet commander-in-chief. So he's trying to use this as a way to say Trump is nuts and we shouldn't give him the presidency. It's a, it's a very high-risk gambit that doesn't look like it's paying off. What, why is it high-risk and why does it look like it's not paying off? Well, I think it's high-risk because you're the old line, you know, don't get in a wrestling match with a pig because the pig loves it and you get dirty. This is 
all on Trump's turf, which is getting in like a Twitter fight with Jeb Bush. He's just Trump's better at it. But I mean, what people hear in this back and forth is they have here Jeb and George, Jeb and George, Jeb and George, which is and more Iraq closely War. more closely cloaks him in his brother's world. Um, and does he really want a full airing of the pre nine eleven conversation? The, the point is not that George W. Bush was responsible for 9-11, but it did happen while he was president. And so, you know, there are people who will say, well, he didn't pay attention to George Tenet's warnings. And, and while he's not responsible for it, the actions he took in that summer beforehand were sort of languid. Now, whether you, whether you agree with any of that or not, you're suddenly engaged in a debate about what was going on in August of uh, 2001 and not about what you're going to do for people tomorrow and in the next day. And that's not a debate that is clean. It's really messy. And when you're in sixth or seventh place in the polls, you need clean fights. And so that's why I think it's not likely to do. Emily, one of the really bizarre aspects of this, which John was just touching on, is that the premise of Jeb Bush's campaign to begin with was, I'm not really a Bush. Like, just let's not, you know, clearly I'm going to use my Bush name. I'm going to raise some money on it. But let's not really talk about brother and father. I've made it on my own. I'm not going to run on their record. And now things have gotten tough for him. And I think he has made a decision that my Bush name is really actually more valuable, at least in the short term as a tactical purpose to kind of get bolster my poll numbers or to get people identifying me with my relatively popular brother. Um that seems to me just a, a, a tactic of, of severe desperation. Um, can, yeah, can it possibly can it possibly I mean, work for him? I don't think so. I mean, we went from him bumbling a question about whether going, you know, invading Iraq was a mistake, to having this moment of loyalty to his brother in the debate that played well, where he. You know, it seemed genuine. It seemed like filial affection. Okay, fine. Now I feel like out of desperation, they're trying to run with that and they kind of ginned up this fake Twitter conflict and they've just gone too far. Like, it was one thing to have one expression of that that felt heartfelt and spontaneous, maybe, at the debate. But then to keep playing on it seems like exactly the wrong direction to go in. And I think it's just because they don't have anything else. I mean, he keeps kind of stepping in it. And some of his issues like immigration and um, Common Core are not that great with the base anyway. And now it's like this is the one way they're going to get the Republican primary voters. I just and he's slipping in the polls. John, there's now a larger percentage of Republicans in polling, these very early polling, who say they will not vote for Bush than say they will not vote for Trump. On the other hand, you have I think it's Mike Murphy, who's a Bush surrogate advisor, a, he run, he's the head of its or head, he's head the of a super PAC. person running a super PAC, yeah. yeah. Saying, well, you know, the, Trump can't last, Carson can't last, and so when everything falls apart, Bush is the Bush is the only real serious candidate left there. Is of course Murphy's going to say that. Do you, as a political thinker, think there's anything to his claim? Well, here's the challenge: the, he has the money to stay alive through March, but the Murphy theory relies on three things happening. One is one is Trump and Carson and that wing of the parties, that person's failing. What will happen before that is the, is the race will come down to essentially two people. One, somebody from the Carson-Trump Fiorina wing, and somebody from the Kasich-Bush-Christie-Rubio wing. So what has to first happen is that Bush has to win his wing. He has to be the head of the, let's just call it the establishment wing 
of the race. Right now, that isn't, it's not happening. He's going backwards, as you said. More people think unfavorably of him than Donald Trump in the Republican Party. More people think that Trump has a better chance of winning the nomination than Bush. And why does that matter? Because Bush's argument was, I'm the general election candidate. People don't buy that theory anymore. His favorability has dropped faster, I think, than any other candidate in our polling in the last month. So those are all big hurdles. And so Murphy's idea, which is that he weathers some losses and then can come on strong after some sorting has been done because he's got a lot of money and he'll do well in those southern, in the sort of post-Iowa, post-New Hampshire, post-South Carolina. Well, you have to survive some defeats. That's hard to do. And then I guess the final point I'd make is that that theory relies on a certain amount of political talent to kind of grab your moment. And so far, he's shown that he has difficulty with politics. I mean, he's had <laughs> comments. He's had, he's had more comments where he's been kind of on the wrong end of them, whether it's about women's health, the Iraq war, Medicare. He's had some issues, had some trouble being sort of good in the, in, in the fight of politics. So let's say he survives till March. He still has to kind of show that skill. So those are all the hurdles for him to clear to, to make the Murphy theory work out. Maybe he can do it, but those are those are some challenges. So. David, are you going to defend his um, calling Supergirl hot? Or is that one of his missteps? I think it's okay to call Supergirl hot. I disagree with the with the actual judgment in that case. But, but I thought that was fine. Do you think that's wrong for him to call Supergirl hot? I kind of found it endearing, although it, may, it was like a little bit... I mean, first of all, it was undignified. And second of all, it was like a little bit creepy. But then I felt bad because that's because I think he's like really old. And that's, Here's the thing, though. Why, why is it undignified? I mean, Donald Trump has put undignified on the menu. This, you know, He said all <laughs> kinds of things people would say are undignified. And so why is Jeb Bush... I mean, I know that... I think I know the answer to this. But it's just... He's got to be just going, oh, man, my life is miserable. Like, Donald Trump goes miserable. out and says all kinds of crazy things, including about women and their appearances, which would fit in the category of, of undignified for a president. Um, and it only leads to the, to the greater glory. I feel, I Wait, really no, feel bad for poor Jeb Bush on this stuff. He's just so it's unhappy. It's fair. Well, but the thing is, like, this is the curse or the blight of being a Bush. And this is where he reminds me so much more of his father than his brother, that he just seems like he's the buttoned up waspy kind of fuddy-duddy guy and so when he tries to break that mold it's not charming it just seems like a little off but yeah i mean it must be completely infuriating people are giving him a hard time for having called a beautiful movie actress hot and donald trump says like the most misogynist ugly things and somehow is unscathed and and i believe in the marketing campaign for the show they don't have her outfitted in a rucksack i mean it is it is a key. It is a key element of the program. The yes. hot quality. Or, yeah, or I mean, she's, she's not. Yeah. Uh, she's not wearing um, a tent. I guess the question in that case, and I haven't done enough uh, forensic investigation to know, is: Is she over eighteen? Is she supposed to be over eighteen? Because it it becomes problematic if she's a sixteen-year-old. Oh, good point. She's oh, called I don't Supergirl. think she's under eighteen. I'm sure the actress isn't under eighteen, but it become, But you, you don't want to be the guy. You don't want to be the sixty year old guy, or in my case, the forty five year old guy who's talking about super hot sixteen year olds. That is not. That is not a place <laughs> anybody wants to be. I let him off the hook. I can't imagine that actress is underage. All right, 
now let's hear about our next sponsor, Bonobos.com. Every guy wants to look his best, but few of us want to put in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe. It is a big pain. Last week, I talked about the cats. This week, the bike stains, the bike grease stains, which have just completely colonized every pair of pants I own. It's terrible. What am I supposed to do about it? Well, there's something I could do about it, which is go to bonobos.com. It takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. They have clothes for any body type, any fit preference. You can easily browse online through top quality styles from your computer. There's free and easy shipping and returns. There is personable and fast service. And you can also even try clothes on at one of their guide shops before you buy. Bonobos offers a full line of stylish men's clothing, all meticulously crafted for a better fit. Their shirts for the office or the weekend. Today is kind of, it's a Friday, so it's between the office and the weekend. Suits that fit like they've been tailored just for you. Jackets and outerwear, ties, belts and shoes, even golf clothes, which would be lovely. I could go play golf and pants. And for a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off your first order when you go to bonobos.com slash gabvest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash GabFest to discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better fitting wardrobe can make. Okay, our last topic today, Matthew Iglesias, our former Slate colleague, now uh, muckety muck at Vox, uh, founder. Occasional GabFest guest. Occasional GabFest guest and, and host of his own new podcast. Uh, Which with, I really like. It's with, called The Weeds. Yeah, with Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Um, they tape in our studio. Did you know that? I saw I them. Not. I saw Matt here on Wednesday, I think. So Matt wrote a an essay in Vox, uh, which got a lot of attention. Headline was Democrats are in denial. Their party is actually in deep trouble. The premise of Matt's argument is that, yes, the Democrats seem to have some demographic demographic opportunities for them. They portions of the country that tend to support them are growing in, in population, that they have won the presidency, that they are in good position to win the presidency again, but that if you think of politics as kind of a long game, the Democrats are in severe trouble. They are getting absolutely hammered at the state level. They've lost, according to another article I read, 913 states and state legislatures during the Obama years out of 7,000. They have control, full control of only seven state governments, whereas the Republicans have full control of, I think, 23 state governments. They do not have a good plan to build up at the grassroots. The Democratic Party is in sort of its issues and what people want is a stronger position, but it's actually not. It's not doing well because it's squandered its, its local organization. So did this essay, John, ring true to you? It, I mean, yes, because of the, I mean, if you look at the, out in the country, it's breathtaking how much control Republicans have. And it's a different Republican Party. Yes, there's obviously similarities. But, I mean, in the, at the state level, there's actually, you know, they have to pass and do stuff. So, in other words, if, it was the, if the Republican Party were defined solely by the Republicans in Washington, who have a very low approval rating, it would be problematic. But out in the states where these victories are taking place, actual governing is happening. Now, that governing may be unpopular in maybe in trouble, but it doesn't look like there's a huge tide. You could see, I guess my point is, you could see a tide at the, at the congressional level because people would just get fed up, but that doesn't seem to be happening. And more to the point, though, if you look at things like the fact that 14% of the landmass of the country is 
the House of Representatives, Democrats only represent 14% of the landmass, this kind of feeling of shrinking, it's become just an, an urban party. Now you could argue, well, then the Republican Party is just a, a kind of suburbs and rural party. But um, there's a looking at that bigger view feels very right to me. What, why, Emily, given all that we heard in the past few years about the incredible Democratic technology advantage and their the great Obama organizing machine of 2008 and 2012, why has that not translated into actual success at local politics and state politics? So one possible explanation is that the grassroots attention to city council races and school board and district attorney, the ways in which people come up state senator, state rep, that all that is just missing, like that the big Democratic donors and organizations aren't organized and and focused on those races in the same way. And if that's still true, then it's part of this kind of at least an accusation that Democrats are too focused on the federal government as the engine of change and the place where they're going to get the most done. And, 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 you know, historically, it's true that conservatives have been more attuned and thinking about the prerogatives of the states. But I feel like it's a familiar argument for liberals that that's a big mistake and that um, the Democrats have to be thinking about the state farm system. So I'm a little confused about why the imbalance is so dramatic. I mean, some of this goes back to 2012 when Republicans took a whole bunch of state houses and had just this very strong showing. I mean, that was when some of the states that seem like they're purple or even blue turned red in in terms of the governor's mansions and the state houses. So maybe there'll be some wave that will push back on that. And I guess the last thing is that whenever you're talking about all 50 states and this big picture. There have to be a million small explanations that are local or regional and contribute in all these different ways that are very hard, at least for me, to have a good bird's eye view of. The the flip side of what John just said, which is that the Democrats control 14% of land area in terms of house districts, is you could say, well, actually, what's extraordinary is that the Democrats control cities, that cities are completely democratic, and that the, the engines of growth in this country are America's cities. That is where prosperity is. That is where growth is. And it, those are democratic areas. Um, and But then and, the cities are part of states that are mostly rural and suburban, right? And so then you get outside the city limits and all the political advert, you know, campaigning changes and you end up with a legislature that does not match the politics and the interests of the big city. Right. I think there, what, what needs to happen, actually, and I'm, I'm not I'm waiting for the clever urban entrepreneur to figure this out, and even Michael Bloomberg wasn't able to figure this out, is cities actually have states kind of by the short and curlies. Like, cities are, supply the taxes, supply the jobs, are the reason why most states are maintaining prosperity. And if cities decided we're not going to play in the political system that you we have that we're going to do things that to to deprive our states of the benefits that they get from our cityness, then you might see a, a kind of shift in political power back towards cities because well, cities are so. GB. Well, we're not going to send our tax dollars to the state capital. Like they can't. What can they do that doesn't shoot themselves in the foot? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I would be interested to see a city like. Uh, you know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh coming together and talking to and telling Pennsylvania, sorry, 
things are going to change. To go or, shove it. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh don't have enough culturally in common to do that easily. But right. I mean, separately, New York City could try to do that to go back to Bloomberg. Or, But I just I still am not sure like Chicago, but I, I'm not sure what the ta- the obvious weapon they have to pick up is. The other thought I had and, and John, I'm interested in your take on this is there's a kind of weird irony, which is that one of the reasons why the Republican Party is so troubling to me is that at a national level, it's so anti politics and anti-government, right? Well, and, it well, it doesn't it disputes that it should be as large as it should be, but and that its role yeah. should be defined and circumscribed, not but, that it shouldn't exist. Well, in any case, this party which is a which is a very anti-government party in its rhetoric has been very successful in getting people into government. And the Democrats who do believe in government and do believe in its its uh, more idealistic uh, power are not going into government because they it, it's this weird switch where, where the party that should well, be supplying politicians and p- supplying kind of policy ideas, those people don't want to do it. They're, they're, they're let, not drawn to it. And they're, well, I'm, gonna, I'm making this up. I don't know if this analogy will hold, but it just came to me. So if you have a great defense, it doesn't mean you still want to win. The, it doesn't mean you want to lose the game, which is to say that their view is if you control government, it keeps Democrats from passing and making all kinds of bad legislation sure, that yeah. ruins your life and limits your liberty. And so if nothing else, you want to have control of things to stop bad stuff from happening. You can go one step further is you want to control things because you want to put policies in place that want to make good things happen, some of which happen because you further uh, loosen restrictions or you beat back existing regulations or when you find new sources of energy and new sources of you know, ways to exploit natural resources, that you're the one controlling the rules of how they're used so that it can lead to greater growth and prosperity I, I get, for all. I, yeah, so, I, guess, I guess maybe my, my point is more apl- applicable to Democrats. Why do Democrats who believe in government, why are they not actually drawn to participating in government nearly as much as you would think they would be or as they were 50 years ago? Right. Well, and they, I wonder if we looked at the kinds of people who are running for local and state office on, who are Democrats 50 years ago, was that seen as a more noble and attractive pursuit by, I don't know, college students, for example, than it is now. Is there a way in which the cynicism about government has actually somehow affected Democrats more than Republicans? I think it has. I don't think there are as many young Democrats getting into electoral politics as you would expect, given given their natural affinities and also given the Obama wave of, of 2008. I'm, I, I yeah, actually I kind of feel that way, too. I mean, I don't have any data to support it, but anecdotally, it seems right to me. Well, two things. One, if the president doesn't lift everybody up, doesn't inspire a new generation and can't, then that's a problem. But let's assume that a president could. Which president for Democrats would, would be better at building the farm team. Hillary Clinton makes explicit, particularly in Iowa, a state that's having, where the Democratic Party is having a lot of trouble, makes explicit and has for many months that she is going to help people at the school board level and at all the local congressional levels because she wants to create a, a farm, you know, not only a farm team, but a, get some people to Washington who might be able to help her if she's made president. She's made that explicit. Bernie Sanders argues we're going to create a revolution here that's going to pull people into politics and get them involved. And so that's his pitch. So, And the question is, which of those two is more well, but we, plausible? Well, we've kind of seen both of those tested because I think Bill Clinton in from 92 to 2000 represented kind of the what Hillary is proposing. And Barack Obama 
in 2008 in particular represented more what Sanders is, which is that we're going to invigorate a new generation. And 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 to me, what's de- depressing as a as a Democrat is that neither of those seem to have worked. <laughs> so is there a way in which, though, I mean, one thing Hillary is going for her that nobody else you just mentioned does is that she's a woman. And so for girls growing up, there is going to be this sense of limitless possibility on their political ambitions that could make a difference. Yeah, they can be super girls, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and also the president. Uh, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting in a Memphis barbecue shack having a beer. Actually, John, why don't you chatter when you're sitting in your hotel room emptying the minibar? Yes, I'll chatter first because I have to go. Gotta go. Um, my chatter is about brain pickings, which is a site that I love. I think David loves too. Um, Maria Popova, who is the author of the site, when it turned seven, did the seven most important things she'd learned over the years. She has now done the nine most important things she has learned and that her site is basically founded around. And I love the nine of them, and I'm going to read them very quickly because they're um, – and it's, a, it's a, something you should go read because there's the full sort of explanation of each. But number one is allow yourself the uncomfortable luxury of changing your mind. Two, do nothing for prestige or status or money or approval alone – Three, be generous. Four, build pockets of stillness into your life. Five. Mm, I suck at that. (laughs) Five, when people tell you who they are, this comes from Maya Angelou, believe them. And just importantly, when people tell you who you are, don't believe them. Presence is far more intricate and rewarding an art than productivity. Seven, expect anything worthwhile to take time. Eight, seek out what magnifies your spirit. Nine, don't be afraid to be an idealist. These are all um, great in and of themselves, but then underneath them and linked to them are things that great writers and thinkers and poets and scientists have contributed to each of those individual ideas. And if you don't know the site, it's a great way to get into what are some wonderful readings. I'm with with, uh, Emily that that stillness one is hard. Yeah. Um, And I'm going to go I mean, we should be good at it. I take it to heart, but I like am so terrible at it. John, and, but John, hmm. you I mean you have to go. John's John. good at it. You are good at it. For someone who is as as just preposterously busy as you are, you really are good at that. Whereas I, I don't think neither Emily and I, who are also preposterously busy, are quite as good. I definitely try. I think it's a uh, I find it incredibly useful in keeping me from um pitching myself out windows. Okay. Later skater. Bye. Bye. Emily, what's your chatter? I was super interested this week in an announcement by 130 police chiefs and prosecutors and sheriffs around the country that they are going to band together and push for alternatives to arrest and reforming mandatory minimum sentences. They formed a group um, that has kind of a cumbersome name, Law Enforcement Leaders to Reduce Crime and Incarceration. And they took a really strong stand in a direction that people in their jobs often never take. And it demonstrates to me that the long-time conventional wisdom that you have to be tough on crime to be in any of these jobs, both to do the job well and also to stay in office, I think we're really seeing that fall apart. And it's a really interesting list to look at, too. A lot of police chiefs from big cities, but then also some former and current attorney generals and district attorneys from around the country. And I feel like if you need political cover, if you're in government right now, to talk about bringing some sanity to mass incarceration, this really should be it. Cool. My chatter is about an amazing statistic I read in the Pacific Standard magazine 
this week about in an article about nuns. There's apparently a few new convents and new or sisterhoods or organizations. I can't. I'm not Catholic. I don't even know the correct terminology. New organizations of young nuns who are coming up in the world, and because there's been this huge problem of young Catholic American women in particular not wanting to become nuns. And the number of nuns in the country has dropped from, I think, about 180,000 to less than 50,000 over a generation. But the amazing statistic was this, Emily. Listen to this. There are more nuns in the United States over the age of 90 than there are under the age of 60. That's crazy. Isn't that amazing? And not good. Not, not yeah, good. Yeah, and sad. Nuns have done so much good for the world. Yeah. I think of them as like a seriously benevolent force. One of the points they made in this article, actually, which may change your view, is that the young nuns coming up are very, very conservative and very oriented well, around religious, because, religious practice rather than social right, good Because in the world. if you were still drawn to this way of life, that would probably be your profile, right? Yeah. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Maybe your last, is it your last week, Tark? No, a couple more weeks. But we have our, our new intern. We've hired our new intern, so that's exciting. Um, our new producer is Jocelyn Frank. Good job. Nice job, Jocelyn. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Oh, and also another and. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you are there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Come to the Superfest, uh, slate.com slash superfestnyc, I think it's the address, on November 16th in New York. We'll see you there, I hope. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.